Chapter 49 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 49 Crafty and Simple. Does it lighten a man's calamities, or does it increase their burden, to know that they are spread abroad and talked of by his fellow men? No man wishes to be famous for his evil fortune, and as for pity, he is apt to be alike resentful, whether it is granted or denied. But that is quite another point. Without a bit of selfishness, and looking at their own interests only, I certainly had a right to complain that an outrage which must move the heart of every honest husband, and thrill the gentler bosom of his faithful wife, had scarcely stirred a single pulse at Molsey, just because the river ran between us. None of the papers, except one that we subscribed to at an outlay of four and fourpence per annum, had taken up my case with any fervor, as sometimes they do when there is nothing in it, like a terrier shaking a skull-cap. This depends on chance, and all chances hitherto had crossed their legs against me, so that I could bring forth no sound counsel. When I told my uncle of my last suspicion, and that I could go no further with it because of the stubbornness of Phil Moggs, he became so enraged that I saw he was right. What? he exclaimed. That old hunks dare to refuse any further information? I wonder you did not take him by the neck and hoist him clean over the tail of his duchess. No doubt you would have done it without the young lady. He would never dare to try it on with me. Why, I knew him when he dug lobworms at the hook. He has forgotten me, I dare say. Well, I'll remind him. You shall pull me up there tomorrow morning. One way or the other we'll crack his eggshell. I could never have believed it of him. It did not concern me to inquire, but as far as I could make out what my uncle meant, he was not at all pleased with Mr. Moggs for having got on in the world so well. No man can satisfy his friends in that respect unless he makes so big a jump that he can lift them also, and even so he never does it to their satisfaction. To think of that fellow, my dear uncle grumbled all the way to Shepperton, owning half a dozen boats and calling one of them the Duchess. Why, I gave him an old pair of breeches once that he might not be had up for indecency, and now he calls my nephew Mr. What's-Your-Name. Do you know who his wife was? No, of course you don't, but I do. Why, she was in the stoke-holes at Old Steers, the pineapple grower at Tennington, and no one knew whether she was a boy or a girl with a sack and four holes in it for her arms and legs. But what a lot of money they made then. He sold all his pines at five guineas apiece to George the Fourth, and sometimes he got the money. Ah, there will never be such days again. You must scrimp and scrape and load back from the mews and pay a shilling where they used to pay you to take it. But here we are. Let him try his tricks with me. Unluckily, my uncle got no chance of terrifying Mr. Moggs as he intended. We landed at a very pretty slab-faced cottage, covered with vines of Virginia creepers, and my uncle began to shout, Moggs! Phil Moggs! Quite as if he were a Thames commissioner. But no Moggs answered, nor did anyone appear, till my uncle seized a boat-hook and thundered at the door. Then a very respectable-looking woman with a pleasant face and fine silver hair came and asked who we were and showed us in. She seemed to know my uncle very well, though he was not at all certain about her. "'Is it possible, ma'am, after all these years?' 
he began in his best manner, that I see the young lady I once had the pleasure of knowing as Miss Drudger. You see the old woman who was once that girl, she answered as she offered him a chair. Ah, those indeed were pleasant days. I thought of the stoke-hole, and could well have believed my uncle had been romancing, if I had ever known him capable of that process, but she very soon reassured me. I worked very hard then, and I had no worries, but I have known plenty of care since then. I suppose you came to see my husband, sir. Is there any business I can do? He started for his holiday this morning. The doctor has been ordering him change of air, and at last I persuaded him to go. He has gone for a month or so to Southsea. We have a daughter there doing very well indeed. She is married to a large boat-builder. My eldest son George seized everything here, now his father has taken him partner. But I keep the books, and I can take any order, just as if Mr. Moggs was at home. It seemed rather strange that she should speak like this, quite as if she expected some inquiry. I looked at my uncle and saw that the same idea was passing through his mind. "'Thank you, Mrs. Moggs,' he said, as if he wanted time to think. "'I fear that we must not trouble you, but you are in the habit of entering orders. All the more important ones we do, at least for the last year or two we have.' It was through a curious thing that it happened, and we were nearly getting into trouble. You cannot be expected to show your books to strangers. I wanted to ask one little question. Moggs would have answered it with pleasure, but of course, as he is not at home, that need not make any difference, sir. Everything we do is plain and open. We don't make a practice of showing our books. But if there is any particular entry you wish to inquire about, I shall be glad to help you. "'that is, if you can tell me the right date.' "'Again we were surprised at her alacrity, "'but after a few words my uncle mentioned the 15th of last May "'as the date of the occurrence he wished to be informed about. "'Let us look at the day-book,' she answered very promptly. "'That will show everything we did then. "'It is in the next room. "'You shall see it in a minute.' "'While she was gone, my uncle leaned both hands upon his stick "'and looked at me. "'This is all gammon, Kit.' he whispered. Never mind, you watch her. The old lady soon reappeared with the book, which was nothing but a calendar interleaved. You see, I have learned business since you knew me, Mr. Orchardson, she said as she turned back to the date. Moggs isn't half such a scholar as I am, but George is a great deal better. Why, he can do decimals and fractions and all that. You don't mind my turning back the edge of the leaf, our prices, of course, are our own concern. We don't seem to have done much on the day you speak of. Very little indeed. Much less than usual, though the day, if I remember right, was beautifully clear and sunny. There seemed to have been only three boats out, and all of them up the river. Your husband spoke of coming down our way, but I suppose it was some other time, and of fetching a lady who cried all the way. Then it must have been some other day. It could never have been on that day, you may be certain, or here it would be in black and white. But he never remembers when he did a thing, and he often mixes up two years together. A lady who cried? Why, let me see, I did hear something about it. Was she in deep mourning, Mr. Orchardson? 
not in deep mourning at all, but a gray summer dress and a short cloak or jacket or whatever you call it, braided in front and scalloped around the bottom, and a very beautiful face with blue eyes like the color of the sky in settled weather. Oh, but she may have cried them out, so you must not go by that so much. And she had a pretty way of putting up one hand. Shut up, I said, for who could stand all this? And Mrs. Moggs looked at me as if she was so sorry. Oh, then it must be someone different altogether. The young party I heard of was about a year ago, and they did say she was going to her father's funeral, whether that day or the next, I won't be certain. My poor Moggs begins to get queer in the head from being so much on the water, no doubt. He is right about most things, and you may take his word for untold gold, Mr. Orchardson. Such a man of his word never lived, I do believe. Sometimes I say it is unnatural, and he ought to try to break himself. For if every one was like him, where would business be? But without days and months he is wrong more than right, even when he have been to church and heard the Psalms. No, no, sir, we have put you in the wrong boat altogether. It can't have been any of our people. You are sure to know best, said my uncle, looking at her in a very peculiar way of his, which was apt to mean, you are a liar. And she seemed to know well what was meant by it. Mrs. Moggs, we are much obliged to you. Remember me to your worthy husband, he laid a little stress on the adjective, as soon as he comes back from South Sea, or rather when you join him there. What station do you find most convenient? Woking, sir. There are others nearer, but that is the first where all trains stop without you go back to Surbiton. Tis a long drive to Woking, but they will soon come nearer according to what I hear of it. How they do cut up the country, to be sure. They are talking a lot of cross lines already, but the river is the true line made by the Lord, and ever so much more pleasant. So it is, Mrs. Moggs, and quite fast enough for me and it isn't frozen over as it was last winter. Uh, you must have had a bad time then, but I'm glad to have found you so flourishing. Good-bye, and we are very much obliged to you. Oh, the liar, he cried as we shot out of hearing. Put a beggar on horseback, it is the truest saying. Here comes a boat of theirs by the color. Hold hard a moment, kid, I want to ask a question. Easing oars, we glided gently past a light boat fitted for double sculling, with only one young fellow in it, perhaps an apprentice. "'Young man,' said my uncle, "'we want to know the name of your best doctor here in Shepperton. Your governor is an old friend of mine. What's the name of the one he goes to?' "'He?' cried the young fellow, balancing his skulls. "'He never been to no doctor in his life. Don't look as if he wanted one, do he?' Oh, I wish I was as tough as the old bloke is. What do you think of that, Kit? Pretty solid, don't you think? What a bushel of lies we have heard from that old Emmy. Jemmy, she was called, till she turned out a girl, and then they took the jay off. Such things don't happen in these schooling days, and much good they have done with them. That thief of a Moggs has cut away, you see, through what he heard last night in Sunbury. They'd lynch him there if they knew he had a fist in it. Now one thing is quite clear to me. Your dear Kitty was taken in a boat to Shepperton or somewhere up the river, and Moggs was paid well for doing it. 
and to hold his tongue about it afterwards. Most likely he did not bring the Duchess, but a lighter and swifter boat, perhaps the one we met. It is useless to ask any of his fellows. You may be sure that he never let them know of it, and it would have been dark by the time he took her. He spoke of an old man, you told me, when he let out what has put us up to this. Could that Downey have made himself into an old man? He could make himself in almost anything, but never so completely as to cheat my kitty. It must have been someone he sent, and not himself. He would never have gone with his scoundrel himself. No, she was much too sharp for that. What lies can they have told to make her cry so? Is it? Darnest plot I never heard or read of, and not a word from her all this time. If she had been alive, she would have found a way to write. Whatever she might believe you had done, she never would have been so cold-blooded to her kit. That is the darkest point of all. I know what women are. Even her stepmother would scarcely have been so relentless. And Kitty was the softest of the soft to anyone she cared for. I fear that you must make up your mind to the worst that can have happened, my dear boy. I will do nothing of the sort, I answered, though I had often tried to do it. And just when we have hit upon a fresh track, Uncle? Nip is in the stable. Can I have him? I shall start for Woking Road this very afternoon. It can do no harm if it does no good, and I never could sit still and let it stop just as it is. Very well and I will telegraph for Tony Tonks to come down by the time that you return. We are bound to let him know of this last turn of the mystery. To this I agreed, and as soon as we got back I saddled the young horse Nip and rode by way of Walton Bridge to Woking, feeling as I went I would almost rather know the worst than live on with this horrible suspense. Woking Road Station was a very different place from what it is now, and of much less importance. Where a busy town stands now, created by the railway and mainly peopled by it, there were in those days but a few sad cottages in an expanse of dark firs and lonely commons, very poor sandy land and black patches where the gorse had been fired, and one public house, called of course the Railway Hotel, and large sweeps of young fir plantations were its chief features then, and the shabby station looked like a trunk pitched from the line. There were two dirty flies like watchmen's boxes, one with the shafts turned up and the other peopled by a horse who had been down upon his knees and was licking the flies off at his leisure. The driver was sitting on a log in the distance, cutting bread and cheese and sipping something from a tin which appeared to have submitted to the black embrace of bonfires. Perceiving that this was a crusty old fellow, of true British fiber and paid by the day which relieved him from the restless anxiety for work, I approached him as nearly as I could in his own vein. They don't seem to be very busy here just now, but I suppose your old nag can go along when he likes. How much do you charge to Shepperton? Shepton? Shepton? Never heard of no such place. Which way do I lie, Governor? Well, you had better ask. I said very craftily, as I fancied. Some of your mates will be sure to know. Some of them must have been there before now. They can tell you how far it is. None of them at home this afternoon, Lazy Rogue answered as he took another mouthful. Better ask Station Master. Like enough he knows. He has nothing to do with you, and I want to know what the fare is. Look here, I'll stand you a pint at the bar if you just come up 
and find out what it is. Some of your mates must have been as far as that to take people for the pike fishing. Shepperton is a great place for that. Very well, come along. But what do you want a cab for when you've got your own horse and a good un too? Stick to your own business, I answered gruffly, and that tone seemed to have more charm for him, as happens very often with ill-conditioned men. You are on your legs now. Try to keep them moving. Gent wants to know the fare to Shepperton, he shouted through the precincts of Bar to the stable yard. Any of you chaps been there lately? Governor gone up to have a snooze. He illustrated that point with a genial wink. Why, Tom been there not so very long gone, said a little old man who was washing a double curb under the pump and twisting out the grime with his thumbnails. Or if it wasn't Tom, it was Joe, Joe Clipson, so it was. And a long job it were. I had to stop up for him. Thought something must have happened. He were gone such a time. Ah, but perhaps he went with a fishing party, I said as indifferently as I could. When people go fishing, they won't be hurried. Come in and have a glass of beer yourself, my friend. Well, no, I never seed no rods, nor baskets, nor nothing of that sort, so far as I remember. But he did say something about waiting for a boat. Thank ye, sir, thank ye. Here's your good health. How long ago was it, and who went with him? My hand began to shake a little, do what I would, for I seemed to be on the track at last when no one was likely to be bribed into lying. Well, I don't know justly, for I weren't here when he went, and when he come back, he had been to station first, and I were that sleepy that I didn't care to hearken, nor he to gab much for that matter, but I know he said something about a young fumble. And how long agone? Why, let me see, must have been about... Time for sewing scarlet runners, for I my my little granddaughter was playing with them, pointing out the speckles and no two quite alike, a thing as I never took no heed on, and I must have been shelling of them for her mother. What time do you generally sew scarlet runners here? Not, I suppose, till all chance of frost is over. Well, sir, gently about third week in May month. There's a lucky day, I know, birthday of Saint somebody. Rabbit me if I can tell his name. The chap has took the devil by the nose and made him holler. Blessed if I shouldn't uh, like to see that, though, wouldn't you, Bill? What a spree you must have been. I can't remember anything about those saints. Our parson isn't one to insist upon them. The one that did that was called Dunstan, I believe. Dunstan, does that sound right? Why, that's the very ticket. "'he exclaimed with a clink of his pewter on the slate slab, "'made up to look like marble. "'Bill, you know that's the day for putting scarlet runners in. "'Was it him who was going in a cab to what you call it?' "'No, no, Bill, you never had no education. "'They used to teach us better in the times gone by. "'Twas three or four days before his time. "'Fetch a prayer book, miss, and then I'll prove it.' The young lady in the bar, who had been looking at us queerly, tossed her head as if to say what fools these men are. Then she swept the money out of reach and disappeared. Presently she came back with an ancient prayer book, and my old friend, after spitting on his fingers, turned over the leaves of the calendar and shouted, Here it is. I could have sworn to it from Sunday school. May 19th, St. Dunstan's Day. He put his thumb up on the place and made a long abiding mark and never shall forget again St. Dunstan's Day. 
Those board schools never teach such useful things as that. In a grammar school we only kept the best of the apostles. Where is Joe Clipson to be found? I asked. Surely he could tell us all about it. I will give a sovereign to know who came in his cab that night from Shepperton. All who gathered for that great discussion looked at me with astonishment and fear, and I saw that I had made a wrong move altogether. For nothing shuts up country mouths so sharply as the hovering in the air of a thing that may prove criminal. At the same time I saw that deep interest was stirred, and I fancied very naturally that it must be in my favor. "'Can't say when Joe will be at home,' said my old friend. "'He have gone to Knapp Hill with a gent to see the trees. "'When they gets among they, they never comes back in a hurry. "'Might be nine o'clock before he comes home.' "'I looked at my watch and saw that I must start at once "'if I meant to be at home in time to meet Tony Tonks. "'And it struck me that he would be much more capable "'of going through with the inquiries here than I, "'who had already made a muddle of it "'by putting questions to point-blank.' "'so I tried to put on a careless manner. "'Well, we won't say any more about it now, "'only I should like to know what fish they caught "'or whether they weighed in at the club with what they bought. "'If we think it worth while to go on with this, "'we can send a boy over to hear Joe's account. "'It doesn't concern anyone except ourselves. "'But we don't like to be beaten by the silver hook. "'There is a rare fish at Shepperton that nobody can catch.' They looked at me as if they could not quite accept this turn, and there was much disappointment on the barmaid's face, for, with a woman's instinct, she had scented a romance. But without another word, I jumped into the saddle and was soon upon the furzy commons, full of prickly wonderings. End of chapter 49